0: Coming back is a listener-supported podcast. If you like the show and want to see it reach more grieving ears and hearts, support coming back on Patreon at patreon.com slash My Patreon supporters get exclusive access to weekly grief journaling prompts and live grief hangouts with me. Pledge for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Join this growing behind-the-scenes community now at patreon.com slash Thank you so much for listening to Coming Back. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. On today's show, I'm talking to Rebecca Sofer and Gabrielle Berkner about the deaths of their respective parents and their popular book and online community called Modern Loss. Also this week, I'm answering a listener question about living in a state of despair. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide and coach who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Coming Back. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This week, our interview is going to cover losing a parent in your 20s and 30s, how literally any moment can be a trigger for grief, the surreal feeling of being an orphan as an adult, and why the time for pretending to be perfect is over. At the top of the show, I am also answering a question about a listener who does not want to live in a state of despair. Before we jump in, I'll just give you a quick heads up that my next live grief support event is coming up on July 29th. So if you are interested in sharing your loss story, asking questions about grief, and connecting to others in a group of people who literally just get it. <laughs> I hope that you'll join me for our next live grief support meetup, which is happening on July twenty-ninth at 8pm. This is an hour long open chat space on Google Meet. So there is no fancy software required to join and you can join from anywhere in the world. Drop in and drop out as needed to get support in your grief, suggestions on what to read or listen to next based on the loss that you're going through, and visibility in whatever your struggles are from the people who are also walking this road, fellow listeners of this show. To join the chat room, the grief support room, simply pledge to support the podcast over at patreon.com slash Shelby When you pledge, you'll unlock all of my private posts, including the link to join us live on Monday, July 29th at 8pm Central Time. I am so looking forward to seeing you there and talking about grief off the mic. So this week, grief growers, I have a listener comment to share with you. Linda, who is a member of my private Facebook group, The Grief Grower's Garden, recently posted about the idea of despair, and I wanted to share her question and my response with you on the show. She said, Shelby, I love your podcasts. They get me through my grief. But recently, I listened to Dr. Jennifer Ashton's interview with Talinda Bennington. Talinda is the widow of Chester Bennington, who is the lead singer of Linkin Park, who completed suicide in 2017. Chester struggled with alcohol issues. Talinda said that she and Chester had talked about a friend of theirs who had lost a son 25 years ago and how sadness has changed her. Chester said there is grief and there is despair. In that conversation, he told her, grief you can move forward through. Despair you cannot. You get stuck in despair. No one should live in despair. Talinda's advice to anyone like her who has lost a loved one is to honor them by keep living in love. Keep living our lives and make our loved ones proud, whatever that means to you. Despair is not a state that we should live in. We should move forward through our grief. There is happiness on the other side. The pain will always be there, but to honor our loved ones, we must move forward in love. I do not want to live in despair. What are your thoughts and advice? Here's my response. First, Linda, thank you so much for sharing this with us in the grower's Garden. I want to reply with Linkin Park's song called One More Light, which has spoken to my heart on more than one occasion. Linkin Park was one of my favorite bands growing up, and I still love their sound. I'll be the first to say that I don't have all the answers, but despair to me comes from a place of helplessness. Believing I have absolutely no power, no love, no way out is what despair feels like to me. I don't think we should avoid despair, I think we should run straight into it, feel it all the way through, rage it out, cry it out, write it out, scream it out, and on the other side of despair and helplessness is surrender. And surrender, a wholehearted, very conscious recognition that we are not in control, is the very first step towards looking towards what we can control, what we do have power over. We have power over our thoughts, the memories that we choose to recall, how we spend our days, our habits, our friends, the books, the podcasts, the resources that we absorb. I talked about this idea at length in an interview I did with podcast guest Chelsea Lee Trescott on her podcast Thank You Heartbreak. We shouldn't avoid despair, but move through it instead. And that was the end of my answer to Linda and the Grief Growers Garden. And Grief Growers, for your reference, I'll include links to Dr. Ashton's interview with Talinda Bennington on suicide, Lincoln Park's suicide tribute song, One More Light, and my interview with Chelsea Lee Trescott in the show notes. These are all phenomenal grief-related pieces on suicide and despair and all very worth listening to. So check these out if you'd like to follow this rabbit hole of despair and suicide and loss kind of all together today. I just want to reiterate that the way I'm defining despair is feeling like I'm in a place of no help and no hope, and that no effort on my part or anyone else's is going to be enough to bring me out of it. And sinking deeper into it, into despair, feels like garbage. It is a very dark, dark, dark emotional place to be. I think this distinction that Chester and Talena Bennington made is really interesting, because there is a big difference between grief and despair. In my mind, grief is the entire collection of emotions that follows the end of or change in what was normal life. Despair is one of these emotions that comes with, with the grief line, with the new spring grief collection. But despair is one of the really, really dark ones. And one that it sounds like to Chester Bennington was very, very fatal if you continue to live from a place of feeling constant despair. I was definitely in a place of despair when I lost my mom. But feeling into it, leaning into it, screaming in the cab of my dad's car, journaling slash crying so hard that I literally ripped paper to shreds with my pen, wailing like the abandoned grieving child that I was, moved me out of a place of despair when I really, I mean, I let myself have it, not in a self-injurious way, but I let myself own the despair that was coming up. I allowed it to visit me, to take over my body, to fully express itself. I'm writing about this in my upcoming book, which is called Permission to Grieve, but giving our emotions a voice, literally allowing them to show up exactly how they want to show up and be expressed without judgment, is the key to setting ourselves free from them. I think where a lot of people run into a roadblock is that they try to resist despair. And for me in my own grief, when I realized that resisting despair is a lot more exhausting than actually feeling despair, I let myself feel it and have it. And when despair was done with me, I was free to move on to other grief emotions like sadness and nostalgia and numbness and apathy and joy and rage. Like there's other stuff to feel besides despair. But I mean, this might sound strange, but feeling despair, just like feeling other grief emotions, is something that I've had to practice. I have to really consciously practice feeling despair. And more practice means that I live there in a place of despair less often. And when it does happen, I move through it just a teeny, 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 tiny bit faster each time. Now, I do want to insert a caveat here, especially because this conversation is circling suicide taking a cue from my friend and podcast guest known wells who was on coming back episode 81 we do not acknowledge mental health enough in the conversation about grief so feeling like you're in a space of constant despair like things are helpless like there's nothing you can do that you're not enough you have no direction and there's no way out is a symptom of many mental health conditions including but definitely not limited to depression if you are depressed before a loss you risk becoming more depressed after a loss, and if you are not depressed before a loss, you risk becoming depressed after loss because of the sheer, upending, powerful, all encompassing nature of grief. Megan Devine calls grief universe rearranging, and I think this is really true. Despair can show up in depression. Absolutely. And when left unchecked, despair can make you believe that things are actually hopeless, impossible, helpless, futile, like you really have no control, like you really have no love, like you really are not enough. It becomes, I mean, physically painful, emotionally painful, but physically painful to be alive. And when that goes on long enough, taking your own life like Chester Bennington, getting out of this life of despair, can feel like the only way to stop the pain. Just last week on coming back in my conversation with Marley Rowell, we talked about suicide being the end of pain for her husband, who was really struggling with mental illness. She shared this visual from a hospital worker who asked her to picture her husband facing the corner of a room, unable to see any other way out and unable to turn around. His death was not his fault because of who he was as a person, but instead a product of this feeling helpless and hopeless of only being able to look into the same corner of the same two walls for pretty much the entirety of his adult life. If you're in this place of despair, feeling helpless and hopeless, and this feeling will not let up on you, if you have the sense that despair is not transient, if it's not going anywhere, please get help grief growers, ask for it. The National Suicide Prevention Hotline here in the US is 1-800- 273 8255. They also have a live chat feature at suicidepreventionlifeline.org if for some reason you don't want to be recognized with your voice or you're just not up for talking on the phone. I've used this on more than one occasion. You might also try something called the crisis text line, which you can access by texting the word home, H O M E, to 741 741. I have used that one as well in my really dark moments. If you're interested in forming a more continual, A continuous relationship with a therapist, I would suggest BetterHelp and Talkspace, which are mobile therapy apps. And if you listen to other podcasts, they will often have discount codes for you. If you're just looking for a place to vent about grief and loss, and you do feel that despair is transient on its way out, but you need to do an emotional dump, I would invite you to join the Grief Growers Garden on Facebook. I am not a licensed counselor and never claim to be, but I have built a really nice community, a really lovely corner of the internet that is tender and empathetic to grief and loss of all kinds. And I would absolutely love to see you there. Grief Growers, we cannot exist permanently in a state of despair. We cannot exist permanently in any emotional state. So, Acknowledge that despair is a part of grief and have the experience of it, but allow these other emotions like sadness and nostalgia and joy to enter the picture of your grief too. It's a package. Remind yourself that even in the aftermath of loss, there are some really teeny but powerful things that you have control over, like what you're looking at in this moment, what you're listening to in this moment, where you devote your attention. We can't prevent Grief triggers from popping up. We can't really prevent being in states of despair. We're kind of plunged there when when it comes. i I don't know a better way to describe it, but in despair, when it tips into that place of surrender, of "I really have no control here, then we can start to recognize the things we actually do have control over. It's almost like you need to get to a place of feeling like you have nothing, to recognize that you do in fact have something. The ground underneath your feet, the eyes in your head, the brain in your head, the heart in your soul. Yeah. Yeah. And no grief growers too this week, that if things get to be too much, if despair is too heavy, if it's not letting up, if it is un- Ending, and you are stuck staring in that corner, there is help for you out there. I have included the suicide prevention website and the crisis text line website in the show notes of this episode. You are absolutely not alone where you are. Next up, I'm talking to Rebecca Sofer and Gabby Berkner, who are co founders of the incredible grief website Modern Loss. grief is setting sail twice on the 2020 bereavement cruises to join a boatload of grieving hearts for interactive grief workshops, heart healing craft projects, circles of hope, and a beautiful candlelit night of remembrance at sea. Request more information at comingbackcruise.com. You'll be contacted by the cruises organizer and previous Coming Back podcast guest, Linda Finley, to hear more about your choice of two tropical cruises setting sail in 2020. And when you're ready, she'll help you reserve your spot on board. Bereavement cruise cabins do go quickly, so request more information now at comingbackcruise.com, where grief finds support and community on the open sea. Rebecca Sofer is the co-founder and CEO of Modern Loss, a website and community the New York Times has hailed as redefining mourning. She's a former producer for the Colbert Report, having accompanied Stephen Colbert on his quest to meet all 435 U.S. House representatives. Rebecca co-authored the book Modern Loss, Candid Conversations About Grief, Beginner's Welcome, and is one of Spirituality and Health Magazine's 10 Spiritual Leaders for the next 20 years. She lives in New York City with her husband and two little boys. Gabrielle Berkner, known to her friends as Gabby, is the co-founder and executive editor of Modern Loss. She's a journalist and content strategist based in LA, where she lives with her husband and two children. Rebecca and Gabby, I am so excited to be sitting across the mic from you because I have leaned on your resources in my own coming back from the death of my mom in 2013, as well as suggested your book modern loss as well as your website modern loss to tons and tons of my listeners in my community it's been very widespread so i'm so just excited to share space with you Uh, and we'll start where we start all of our interviews here on coming back if you could both please share your loss story okay so
1: this is gabby and when I was twenty-four, I was working in newspapers. I was an action I was actually an obituary writer. I just started my career in newspapers. I was about two years out of college when I got the news that my father and stepmother had been
2: murdered in a robbery.
1: And all of a sudden, here I was, a recent college graduate, thrown into um a life experience. I certainly never expected to have and um could not have prepared for. Um all of my friends were also around 24 25. Um uh, most of them had parents who were living and didn't know anyone who had been murdered. So they truly wanted to be there for me and many showed up in really um powerful and important ways. But They couldn't always intuit exactly what I needed um, in the aftermath of this loss, like being a 24, 25-year-old and never having um, experienced anything remotely like this. Um, My loss story is that when um, my my dad and my stepmother were murdered in their home in Sedona, Arizona, where they had been living for about a year and a half after moving from Los Angeles, semi-retiring There And um, they had a pipe that froze and broke. They called a local plumbing company. They sent a man who was a methamphetamine addict in prison for 10 years, out only for two weeks when um, he was sent into their home. And, you know, it was it's this random, horrible story that. um, Never that I never wanted to be part of my life um, and was. That's the story that that brought this topic close to my heart.
2: Um, And this is Rebecca. So this is um, definitely working with grief and loss is not something I ever imagined myself doing. In fact, I would have definitely chosen to not do something like this, but um, life has other things in store for us (laughs) than what we think we have in store for it. And what it had in store for me was... Uh, straight out of grad school. I had just graduated Columbia Journalism School in New York City and I was working at the Colbert Report, which is, you know, was my dream come true job and I was producing there and I just thought I was going to have this amazing career in political satire, um, you know, like making fun of politicians for small salaries and just really happy about it. But I turned 30 Um, my second year at the show and I went on a camping trip with my parents to upstate New York, a place in the Adirondack mountains. And it's where we went every summer. This was like our family vacation. It was very, very sacred to me because it was the place where we always came back to every year, even though life, you know, and everything around us was changing this. It was an Island. It was like rock and trees and dirt and water. None of that changed. So this was a really amazing place for us to connect with each other. Um, and we had this amazing trip. It was late August in 2006. And at the end of the trip, we headed back to New York City in a very overstuffed Subaru Outback, uh, my mom and dad and me. Um, <clears throat> and uh, when my dad has uh, an older son from another marriage. And my parents dropped me off in New York at my apartment late that night. Uh, it was Labor Day. I was heading back to work the next day. I, you know, said this really quick goodbye to my mom and dad. They came up, they used the bathroom. We had a good laugh. Um, you know, I was supposed to see them in a few days. My cousin Julie was getting married back in Philly. And 45 minutes later, I was still in my camping clothes. I was on my laptop, just getting mentally ready for the next day. And I got a phone call from my, you know, my dad. Um, son, that there had been an awful accident and that I really needed to get to a hospital in the middle of New Jersey. Um, and, you know, I was told that my mom was alive, but she was really, really badly hurt. And my dad was screaming in the background. And it was just this awful, you know, anytime I talk about it these days, um, I don't want to talk about it. I don't like thinking about that moment. Um, I miraculously found a ride to the hospital to find out what I knew as soon as I got that phone call, which is that my mom hadn't survived this car accident. It had been really bad. It was on the New Jersey Turnpike. Um, my dad survived. He was mildly injured. And the way that I found out was going into the hospital room and seeing him bandaged up and having him say, I'm so sorry. So that was my entry <laughs> into the world of loss and grief and the ridiculous nonlinear ride that it is. Um it was very isolating. It was as Gabby said, you know, I was surrounded by people who are also like in their 20s. I was, you know, like their 20s and 30s. We were joking all day long. We were actually that was our job to joke all day long. And um, so it was really hard for me to navigate that because I also wanted to joke all day long for a living, but I also <laughs> was dealing with very real things like estates and choosing outfits for funerals and thinking about how my Mom would never see me, um, get married if I ever got married. And so, you know, it was a really hard space to navigate because there was no roadmap for it. And I got really tired of it very quickly because I found that the onus seemed to always be on me to make everybody else feel really comfortable. And so I was really happy when I finally met Gabby several months afterwards due to a mutual friend who got a bunch of friends together. Um... Had all lost a parent, and we just, you know, we'd never met each other before, and we became friendly very quickly. And it just was very comfortable to talk to somebody else who got it.
1: Yeah, I think it had been like six months for you, Rebecca, at that time. And you're like, I'm still feeling this way. It's already been six months. And everyone else who had um, lost someone, you know, years prior was like, It's only been six months. Like, that it's such right. a short time in the in the like great expanse of grief
2: right it definitely felt like a nanosecond at that point and I thought that that was kind of my hand I was like okay I've been dealt mine but no so uh just shy of four years after my mom died my dad had a heart attack while he was traveling abroad and did not survive so by age 34 I was uh you know, I'm not parentless, but I was not being parented by anybody who was living.
0: I want to jump in to the midst of both of these stories, because you both made a point to comment on what it's like grieving or having a parent die in your 20s and 30s. And that's a life I have faced as well. Listeners of this podcast know that my mom died in my senior year in college. uh, And I actually finished school after her death and then graduated. And it's such a weird time to be experiencing loss, which is probably one of the first reasons I latched on to modern loss as a resource. Um, and we talk a lot on the show about what 20 somethings are bad at, while grieving. But I think there's a few things that 20 somethings are really good at. And one of them jumped out at me in the front of your book. It's the thing that you called the women with dead parents, which is like this unabashed nickname, that stands in for the support group of 20 somethings who have lost parents and are pissed about it. And I think this lack of, um, this lack of stuffiness or fluffiness surrounding grief is, I I don't, I don't know if that I would call it a trend. Maybe it's something that's coming up. That's a way that we grieve in the modern age, but something that 20 and 30 somethings these days seem to be good at is like taking the, the veil off of grief and calling things for exactly what they are.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how people grieved in 1947 (laughs) because as old as I feel now, I wasn't alive, but I gather and I even can see how they grieved, I guess out loud for the most part, 20 years ago. I mean, I remember when, you know, um, somebody in my high school died and there wasn't a lot of talk about it. Um, It was just something that I feel like was best kind of pushed under the rug as a way to not bother people or upset them or remind them um as opposed to really talking about it which i think all three of us know here on this podcast is what really helps is airing it out you know making loosening up all the energy that you would otherwise be expending, pushing it all down
0: i think that was perfectly phrased and it's something that uh that's I I don't know, there's there seems to be this wave that's coming up of people who are getting better at grief, because we're, we're naming the thing. Um, There's something unabashed about it. So I'm wondering, maybe for each of you, when was the first time that this happened? Or when you started speaking about it publicly or writing about it publicly? Because I know from my own experience, grief was first internal and then started to be this thing I needed to push outside of my body.
1: So. I was very, um, like, I had built a career in my 20s on, like, telling other people's stories. First as an obituary writer, and then as a beat reporter um, and features writer for various newspapers and magazines. And um, I felt like my own story wasn't something I had really explored. I knew that one day I probably would, but it felt really scary to me. On the first anniversary um, or on the year side, which is the Jewish anniversary of my father and stepmother's death, I wrote a piece for the newspaper I was working on talking about what that year had been like for me. And very quickly, like, I got a lot of feedback. Like, people reached out to me, um, not because I think it was a particularly excellent piece of writing, but because I think people were moved by the story. And when people started reaching out to me, I felt very, like... Comforted and also quickly embarrassed, like maybe I shouldn't have put that out there. Um, I'm really comfortable telling other people's stories. I sort of didn't really know if I was ready to share my own and I really um and that was like the last time I wrote about it for years, that very first anniversary and then I, I really started telling my story for real sometime after Rebecca and I came together with about two decades of media experience between us to say okay we're going to start this platform we're going to help other people tell their story we're going to be a convener of voices around this topic we're going to approach it in a way that we haven't seen it approached um you know in our own experience as young adults who are grieving and um and you know in those first few years we spent a lot of time you know Helping people, some of whom were writers and some of whom were not writers, many of whom were not writers, but had really powerful stories to tell, tell them in a way um, that they felt proud of, that we felt proud of, um, that helped other people who were going through something similar. Or in, in the, or the kernel of each story that resonates with someone who's experienced, with anyone who's experienced um, some kind of loss. And then in the book is really where we went deep on our own stories, because um, as Rebecca often says, this wasn't a therapy project for us. We weren't doing this to to sort of get all our our stories out into the world. We were getting there to be we were we were putting it out in the world to be a convener of these stories. Um, But then with the book, we really challenged ourselves to think through what this project, what grief and loss has meant for us um, on a number of different topics, like Rebecca wrote about intimacy and technology. Um, I wrote about secrets and about how grief changes shape over time. Um, And so that was a big impetus for us to sort of really go there um, in in a very personal way.
2: For me, the first time I really wrote about, I guess, myself was when my first baby so we launched modern loss the website so it exists as a website as a book um in real life we do a bunch of events all year long um and the first time that i really wrote about it was when my first son was born because we launched when we were both pregnant actually and by the way this is rebecca um and i was literally nine months pregnant i gave birth um like two and a half weeks or something after after Modern Loss was up um, online and it was when he was 4 months old I, I'll, I'll always remember this that um Adirondack Life magazine asked me to write a piece about my parents um and i was and i guess they had read Some, they read some press about where I had mentioned Lake George, which is in the Adirondacks, which is where I went camping. And they were like, ooh, like no one ever talks about us. Like, let's reach out to her. And so they asked me if I would write an essay. And I was really flattered. Um, and I was really tired because I had a newborn and he didn't sleep. And so I just, I ended up writing this piece four five months, or yeah, it was like four months after the site was up, maybe April 2014. And I was so sleepless. And I was, it was really when I was starting to consider what it was like to be a parent with no living parents. Um, because that was a type of grief that I hadn't lived up until then. Even though my parents had been dead already for a few years, I didn't go through losses. You know, I I really don't like this term parentless, motherless. I'll say unparented parent. Um, You know, I hadn't gone through that before. And it was this realization as I was writing this essay, which ended up being very close to my heart about, you know, how I was planning on bringing my parents' memory into my baby's life because I, I... really didn't know how i was going to do that. it was that realization that oh this is like a long game. <laughs> like oh i get it. like this is actually a marathon and it's not a mar- it's like an ironman, you know, race that's going to last a really long time and it's going to have different bumps in the road and it'll have different, you know, i guess easy coasting stretches. but okay, i'm in my like okay, let's figure out how to be a parent with a baby without being able to ever ask your parents for advice or have them hold your baby or have any grandparents on your side. Um, and, and that was like really, really amazing experience for me because um, when I posted it on social media, I got a lot of great responses back from people who also were going through something similar. And I definitely didn't know a lot. I, I did not know and still don't know a lot of people who have lost both parents at a relatively young age. So for me, that was just, you know, like Abby said, um, you know, nothing bad has come from putting myself out there. It's just that it wasn't necessarily what I set out to do.
1: Right. I was thinking about it actually this morning, Rebecca was talking about what it was like to to have a baby, um, you know, in the aftermath of losing both of her parents. Um, you know, I lost my father and my stepmother, my mother is still alive. I was watching recently when, um, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle brought their baby out and and introduced the baby to obviously the world but also to um grandparents and so many of the triggers in grief are actually happy events that you are wishing that your loved one could have could have been there and also like mundane moments that you, that you just know that they would um find something so funny or roll their eyes along with you, Um, but there's just like, there's these beautiful moments of our lives that are, I wouldn't say marred, but changed for sure um, by having lost a parent um, earlier than many of our peers.
0: Yeah, that's something that's come up uh, in my own world as well, and it's something I kind of refer to as the lens of grief. It's like this whole experience isn't necessarily bad, But now I'm seeing it with the lens of grief and it's different. Like nothing, I don't know that anything I ever experience ever again will be 100% all good. There's always like that lingering 0.005% of like, I wish they were here. Totally. There's no all good.
2: No, that's not life. There's never any all good in anything. Even if both your parents are, you know, sitting on either side of you, holding you tight, right? Um, So it's just, there it's shades of gray and sometimes the shades are darker and sometimes they're a lot lighter and they resemble white a lot more. Um, but it's just the, even the happiest moments. And I just think also some of those moments, like Abby said, are counterintuitive. Um, I mean, so yes, there are big moments, but for me, I, I was surprised that Say the night before my wedding, <laughs> I was so petrified of not being able to get through my wedding ceremony. Um, I got married in two thousand nine. My mom died in two thousand six, so I was just terrified of getting married without her to the point where I actually got married in rural Massachusetts, which is absolutely <laughs> not where I grew up, um, and had everybody come to this like corner of Massachusetts to see me get married on a farm with goats.
1: It's truly beautiful. Some of gonna- the The most beautiful flowers I've ever seen. (laughs) It was beautiful. It was. Um, We we were blissfully
2: ignorant that there were chicks everywhere at that time. So, yeah, it was really nice. But um, it was a great ceremony. And it was actually just a really fun wedding. My wedding was amazing. Gabby was there. You know, so many friends I had met over the previous couple of years in the wake of my mom's death were there. Um, So new friends, old friends, people who were my mom's friends who had known me since before I was even you know, (laughs) a twinkle in her eye were there. And I I had thought that that was going to be a very hard moment for me that I was going to be crying, you know, all day that I was going to be melancholic. Um, Instead, I just like got down to, you know, I had this 13 piece funk band, and it was one of the best nights of my life. Um, But, (laughs) you know, there are nights like one of our contributors in the book, Kate Spencer, I love what she, wrote because she writes this amazing piece about how everyone thinks it's going to be your wedding day. But sometimes it's like the night that the Kardashians air and you're watching Kim Kardashian and you want to call your mom and chat about it. And it's like that familiarity isn't there. Um, and of course, it's the cotidian that gets you as much as the expected big moments. And I guess the takeaway of that is that
1: any moment is a trigger. <laughs> like, you know, you never know. Right. Like we do, we do sometimes do content warnings, but rarely because it's so like anything life is a trip for someone who's experienced grief, just as you said, Shelby, that, um, that, uh, like nothing is ever like untainted by grief. Once you know it, um, like everything can be a trigger. The cereal aisle can be a trigger. Like, you share a name with Rebecca's mother. You share a first name with Rebecca's mother. Like you just never know um, what is going to trigger someone in any given moment.
0: What then helps you come back? Because if everything in the world has barbs on it, and if everything is a trigger in some form or fashion, or can be, if if your brain makes the connection in that moment, or however your grief is manifesting that day, then what does like, Pull your boots back down to the ground, for lack of better phrasing.
2: When you say pull your boots, I mean, are you talking about what gets you through the day sometimes or what spurs you on in general and gives you, you know, an ethos on
0: life? Oh, I think both. I think the first is, is tools for coping in this exact very moment. But also, I think some of our tools can be fuel for moving forward as well, yeah. not moving on, moving forward and yeah. keeping momentum.
2: I don't have as many of these as I did in the early days. And when I say early days, I actually mean like many hundreds of days, maybe even more than a thousand days. So I just want to be really clear that I was in the shit for much more than one year. Um, you know, at first it was like two different parents (laughs) years apart, just as I was kind of coming to from my first, my first parent's death, the second one died. And then I kind of had to, come to terms with like the very, very, very weird, um, surreal feeling of being a literal orphan, um, you know, an adult orphan, I guess, um, who didn't have kids, who didn't have anybody before her. It was very weird. Um, so it took me a really, really long time to get to the point where I could actually envision the long view. Um, in those, Days and I still have them sometimes, um, depending on what's going on. But very, you know, much fewer and further in between. I go micro, and that is a very big thing for me. I go micro. It is really, it's. um, I wish I could say something that was like really (laughs) flowery and like really deep, but I just take baby steps and I say, "All right, you don't think you can deal with this? Like, you don't think you can get through this day? Literally, get through the next sixty seconds." get through the next hour, you know, what are you going to do for the next 30 minutes to get to that minute 30? And what are you going to do in the next week to get through that week? And that is a very, very strong coping mechanism for me that has really, you know, it really helped me back in the early days. It, it was really, really helpful. Um, another thing is, you know, I think like you, it's very easy to carry the weight of the world on your shoulders. We're living in a really terrifying time right now. Um, You know, I mean, I would assume that you agree, you know, you kind of navigate the world and wonder what's gonna get you. Is it the climate? Is it, you know, an active shooter? Is it, (laughs) I don't know. Someone who has extreme political tendencies than you do. Um, I don't know. Um, So, you just kind of come to this point where you're like, okay, everybody is dealing with something. Everyone is traumatized from something. Maybe it's grief from death loss. Maybe it's grief from something else. um, And we're all just muddling our way through. So you just realize, oh, we're all survivors. We're all survivors. So like I can do this too.
1: Yeah. um, Something that my father said really helped me, um, in the early days, um, because, you know, I had so much good advice from him. I had 24 years of advice. And so, um, so in the beginning, the only thing he missed in my life was really my grief. Um, now I feel like, oh, he's missed so much more. He's missed, you know, so many, um, you know, world events. He's missed my marriage, birth of my kids, um, you know, missed so much more than my grief. But in the early days, like, I really felt like he was very close to the surface of my life. And one of the things that he had said, which was he kept it on a post-it note on the side of his computer monitor, um, was it's not necessary to react. And um, it's really easy to be triggered by like very little things that people say in the aftermath of loss. Because people say a lot of like dumb and thoughtless things, not because they're said with malice, but because, it's really hard to know what to say um it's really it's really tricky and so learning not to react to everyone who said they're in a better place or it takes this long or um at or any kind of sentence that started with at least you know i was able to say okay that's them like not knowing what to say in any given moment to make me feel better And this is me with, like, living with my reality. And those are two different things. So really, like, putting um, the things people said in perspective and learning to glom on to the, like, the powerful, transformative things people said to me. And two of those things, and I know Rebecca's heard this story before, um, are very paradoxical things that really helped me in um, the early days and in the long run. Um, My friend Molly said to me, uh, don't expect too much from yourself. Like every day that you she I think she said every day that you get up and brush your teeth and don't kill yourself, like you should totally pat yourself on the back for doing that. And um if you use conditioner, if you do your laundry, if you pay your bills, that's totally icing. And my grandmother, who had just lost her son, who's my father's mother, said to me, Don't expect too little from yourself. And um she gave me the permission to still like pursue the things I wanted to pursue in my life and not to be. um, She gave me the permission to still feel ambitious. So on one hand, having a friend that said, don't expect too much from yourself and having a grandmother who said, don't expect too little from yourself, gave me permission in my life to take my foot off the pedal and ease up on myself when I needed to, and to put my foot back on the pedal when I wanted to, and to say, no, my You know, my life has been irrevocably changed, um, but I can still live. I can still live with joy and intention. Um, I can still be ambitious. I can still pursue um, love and career and um, everything I wanted before this terrible thing happened. Um, You know, I can still look for and potentially find those things.
0: I love those two phrases. And the fact that they came from two different people as well, because one of my favorite authors, Gretchen Rubin, sums this up in accept yourself, but expect more from yourself. And that's literally like her one sentence of "Totally, yes, and. (laughs) And I apply it to grief. She applies it to the study of happiness. But I'm like, oh, no, no, that applies to grief as well. Oh, my God, that's great. I'd never heard that. Um, What book is that in? Uh, I believe that one is in her book Better Than Before, but she says it a lot on her own podcast, which is called uh, Happier with Gretchen Rubin. And I weirdly listen to a podcast called Happier a lot for tips about grief, even though mm-hmm. that's not the slant of them. You don't always need to get grief advice from grief outlets. Sometimes it just comes from other magical, bizarre places.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. I listened to that 10% Happier. Have you ever listened to that one? It's um, with a journalist who had a from I think ABC News, I can't think of his name right now. Who had a panic attack
0: on the? Air. I believe it's Dan Harris. Is it not?
1: Yes, it's Dan Harris.
0: I read his book.
1: Yeah, no, I I, I love that, and I, yeah, the the you can find like beautiful advice about living with loss from a range of different places, not necessarily grief related, as you said. I would say I've gotten very few of my the best advice and
2: the inspiration from grief outlets. There weren't a lot. I mean, the whole reason that modern loss exists in the first place, but you know, the whole reason Gabby and I started it was because we, it, what existed wasn't resonating with us. We pulled it from elsewhere. You know, we pulled um, our inspiration from wonderful storytelling projects and comedy shows and whatnot. Um, you know, it's uh we just, you know, we kind of, it was all about the tone and the sensibility, and as opposed to just you know where are we going to look for inspiration from for a grief site from another grief site.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think we were like meeting people where they were at. We saw this like digital white space in the digital universe, and I think now in the past you know five six years, I think the culture. I mean, maybe partly because of modern loss, maybe because just there's been a shift in the culture and there there are there is a lot of storytelling around grief and loss in music, in movies, in TV, um, in social media, like people coming face to face with other people's losses, like in their feeds constantly. I think um I think the culture is shifting around how we talk about this. Um, can it be casual? Can it be conversational? Like does it have to be this taboo um does it have to be the stigma and the answer I believe to those two questions are absolutely not
2: yeah and we also have the tools to do it you know it's like we have very low touch ways to make other people bear witness to what we're going through I didn't have well Facebook had just launched when my mom died um but she didn't have Facebook you know she had long distance calling and handwritten letters and I mean I'm making her out to be like you know, a million years old. She wasn't old when she died. But, you know, we just have different tools that are, and those tools allow us and also really encourage us to kind of insist that we let it all hang out. And so we are. And I think that sometimes it's for worse, but I have yet to experience a really unfortunate and painful personal reaction to, you know, letting my grief hang out, you know, online. Um, I don't really go very deep online. I don't really post on Instagram, you know, very raw posts about how I'm feeling if I'm having a really bad day, but other people do. And that works for them. And I think that that works for them. It may not work for me, but I think if you're on the reading end of that, it definitely makes you more empathic. It really makes you empathize. It gives you a sense of what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes. Um, And I think that that is only good because, you know, sure, millennials, they're no fluff. They'll let it all hang out. I think that's only going to help move the needle on this cultural taboo. You know, like, I really think it's going to be eradicated. I think there will be, you know... I mean, I think modern loss can exist in a very valid way. But in terms of having a mission to eradicate the stigma on honest talk on grief and loss, maybe that mission is going to be redefined because we won't have to do that anymore.
0: I think that's a perfect segue to let everyone listening know where exactly they can find modern loss as well as your book and maybe what's coming up next.
1: So our website is modernloss.com and our book um, you can find at any local independent bookstore, also on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Indiebound, um, wherever books is, are sold. As they say, um, events was like one of the really powerful things about traveling around the country uh, with our book in the year after was doing live storytelling events and panel discussions, where you know we you know with with the live storytelling helped. People tell their story in another in another medium. We also really
2: wanted when we launched to to we were very mindful of the fact that we didn't want modern loss to just be digital dust. We wanted it to be something that could be held in your hand. So we were lucky enough to have a book come out. Um, We wanted it to be something where people could see and you know glean, you know, each other's reactions from their energy and hug each other and have a laugh and share a drink. And so we created live events. Um, and so What's been really amazing about seeing modern loss evolve over the last five years is that it really does exist in many different mediums and it, it exists in, on different planes, and people are able to get what they need um, from each of them. You know, like if you're somebody who really doesn't want to put it all out there, but wants to feel like part of a community, even if you don't want to speak up, You can exist online with us. You can read our pieces. You can be on our closed Facebook group, which is something that I think you're a part of it, Shelby. Um, It's an amazing thing. I mean, people let it all hang out. Everybody is amazingly supportive and people feel comfortable sharing their innermost experiences with others because of the very fact that these people are not the ones closest to them. It gives them a certain freedom and anonymity to do so. Um, if you're somebody who wants that and also wants to actually have a coffee with somebody and talk through something, we have live events. And one of those, um, you know, my favorite kind is our live storytelling events, and we've done many, many of them to date around the country. And we integrated them into our book tour last year when Gabby and I trotted all over the country. Um, and, and I think we did a handful, like four or five of them, where we had a lineup of five or six people. Um, wherever we had book contributors and could fold them into the lineup, we did so. Um, for example, in LA, we had Kate Spencer, who's a, comedian and podcaster who she has a great piece in the book and she told a story. We have Anthony King who wrote a piece for the book who actually just co-wrote the Beetlejuice musical on Broadway was just nominated for a Tony. Um, Yassir Lester who it writes, for wrote for girls. Um, And so, you know, each, the tenor of the lineup took on a different form. You know, it, it was different in every city we went to LA. It was very entertainment based. Um, And it's just so great because each person gets five minutes to tell this narrow slice of their grief experience. It's, it's a narrative arc. It's not just like this happened, then this happened, then this happened. It's we give the person the chance to talk about a specific incident or a specific change in their lives that they've noticed as a result of loss. Um, and it's so great because it cracks everybody open in the room. And when you have everybody cracked open in the room, then they're ready to share with each other. And so if you have drinks afterwards, you know, or cocktails or whatever, or book signing, people are just, re- they go up to each other and there's no preamble. You, they're able to like dive right in because they've been given this hour-long invitation by six other people who went deep.
1: Right and um it's it's amazing what people say transforms them. I mean we've gotten so many notes over the years. Just thank you so much for letting me and helping me tell my story on the website. and For some people, they have already written their story, but something about speaking their their truth aloud like is a really is really transformative for them. It's like owning their narrative for the very first time.
0: Yes, and it is a hyper. Vulnerable experience, which is why platforms like Modern Loss and platforms like Coming Back continue to exist and grow, uh, because I think there's like a there's a craving in the world to get to that deep level, and maybe it's because we're speeding along, maybe to do it more quickly than we used to back in the day, but maybe we're just craving more vulnerability and more exposure and more. Uh, yeah, that's exactly what I'm carrying under the surface too. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think that the time for pretending to be perfect is over. Ooh, that's so yeah. radical. Well, I I mean, I can't even pretend because, like, if you saw me, you'd be like, oh, my God, she's so not perfect. So I don't even try. Um, (laughs) But, you know, it's like on Instagram, it's like everyone's perfect. Like all the, you know, like there's like a mom Instagrammer and her kids are perfect and this and that. But, like, that's giving way to more, (laughs) like, actually, these are my three kids. Today was a total shit show. And, like, you know, there's no perfection. It's always hard. And. Actually, that's not only is it endearing, it benefits you to do that because you look human. (laughs) Um, People like you more, you look fallible, but then you're reading this and you're like, okay, I guess I don't have to, I don't have to pretend so much. Like I can be honest and open too. And that's only good.
1: Yeah. I think when people share what they don't do well, they share their vulnerabilities. I mean, that's the most humanizing thing about someone. Like those are the people I want to have a drink with.
0: I am so grateful to both of you for coming on, coming back today to talk about modern loss, your own losses, forgiving ourselves, expecting things of ourselves, but also not. And, uh, and just generally being human and being vulnerable in the midst of the very worst things that happen to us. So thank you both, Gabby and Rebecca, so much for coming on today.
1: Thanks for having us and thanks for the work you're doing.
0: Yes, thank you. You are wonderful. And
2: as Gabby said, you have my mom's name. (laughs) You're my new favorite person.
1: Thanks for
0: having us. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so, so very much to Rebecca and Gabby from Modern Loss who shared so many great insights with us as well as the human components of Modern Loss that make it such a great resource for grievers. Rebecca came back by practicing what she calls going micro. Gabby came back by accepting herself, but also expecting more from herself. You can find Modern Loss' articles, best-selling book, and upcoming events at modernloss.com, which is listed in the show notes for this episode. You can also join Rebecca and several other grief conversationalists at the Kripalu Center for Yoga and Health leading a grief retreat from July 28th to August 1st, and that's located in Massachusetts. To keep this little grief podcast going and to receive insider bonuses like weekly grief journaling prompts, podcast swag, and live grief support meetups, pledge to support the show at patreon.com slash Shelby for Our next hangout is July 29th. Thank you so much this week to Mona who became a Patreon supporter over the weekend. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and tell a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you so much to Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia, Instagram also at Shelby Forsythia, or simply Shelby for If you'd like to leave a question or comment for a future show, email me at Shelby at Shelby As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you, I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing. grief coaching is a powerful way to sit across from your loss and say what do you have to teach me if you're ready to start sharing your story or you're looking for tools exercises and a map forward in the aftermath of loss please head to shelbyforsythia.com grief coaching to fill out an interest form grief is a personal experience but we don't have to go it alone my heart and ears are here to witness and companion your grief story, and I would be honored to provide a foundation for you as we explore, construct, and navigate your own coming back. Find out more and get in touch for a free 30-minute consultation call at shelbyforsythia.com grief dash coaching. Give your grief the gift of coaching at shelbyforsythia.com grief dash coaching.